0: This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. Today I have for you on this otherwise unremarkable Sunday, hopefully, <laughs> that uh, an examination of the concept of heresy. It's a term we tend to throw around a lot in the traditional sphere. We throw it around a lot, and I think a lot of people don't understand what it means. And I have for you today Hilaire Belloc, the inspiration behind the avatar you're seeing on this screen. If you're watching this on YouTube, you know, the guy with his sunglasses on, that's just a stylized image of Hilaire Belloc. He inspired my channel to do and for the work I do, and he wrote, he released a book more than a hundred years ago called The Great Heresies. And in that book, he describes, well, the great heresies. (laughs) In the first chapter, it's the introduction, he describes what a heresy is and i have that for you today because the great heresies or the concept of heresy is something we need to understand so that when we say that what james martin is doing or francis is doing or any of the others what they're what we say, someone says what they're doing is heresy better know what we mean by that at times this might sound a little dense but i think you'll be easy to understand honestly anyway enough of that for me heresy what is heresy? by Hilaire Belloc. The introduction to his great work, The Great Heresies. What is a heresy, and what is the historical importance of such a thing? Like most modern words, heresy is used both vaguely and diversely. It is used vaguely because the modern mind is as averse to precision in ideas as it is enamored of precision in measurement. It is used diversely because, according to the man who uses it, it may represent any one of fifty things. Today, with most people, of those who use the English language, the word heresy connotes bygone and forgotten quarrels, an old prejudice against rational examination. Heresy is therefore ought to be of no contemporary interest. Interest in it is dead because it deals with matter no one now takes seriously. It is understood that a man may interest himself in a heresy from archaeological curiosity, but if he affirm that it has been of great effect on history and still is, to day, of living contemporary moment, he will be hardly understood. Yet the subject of heresy in general is of the highest importance to the individual and to society, and heresy in its particular meaning, which is that of heresy in Christian doctrine, is of special importance for any one who would understand Europe. The character of Europe and the story of Europe. For the whole of that story, since the appearance of the Christian religion, has been the story of struggle and change, mainly preceded by, often if not always, caused by, and certainly accompanying, diversity of religious doctrine. In other words, quote unquote, the Christian heresy is a special subject of the very first importance to the comprehension of European history, because In company with Christian orthodoxy, it is the constant accompaniment and agenda agent of European life. We must begin by a definition, although definition involves a mental effort and therefore repels. Heresy is the dislocation of some complete and self-supporting scheme by the introduction of novel denial of some essential part therein. We mean by a complete and self-supporting scheme, any system of affirmation in physics or mathematics or philosophy or whatnot, the various parts of which are coherent and sustain each other. For instance, the old scheme of physics, often called in England Newtonian, as having been best defined by Newton, is a scheme of this kind. The various things asserted therein about the behavior of matter, notably the law of gravity, are not isolated statements, any one of which could be withdrawn at will without disarranging the rest. They are all the parts of one conception, or unity, such that if you but modify a part, the whole scheme is put out of gear. Another example of a similar system is our plane geometry. Inherited through the Greeks and called by those who think or hope, they have got hold of a new geometry, Euclidean. Every proposition in our plane geometry that the internal angles of a plane triangle equal two angles, that the angle contained in a semicircle is a right angle, and so forth, this not only sustained by every proposition in the scheme, but in its turn supports each other individual part of the whole. Heresy means then the warping of a system by exception, by picking out one part of the structure, and implies that the scheme is marred by taking away one part of it, denying one part of it. In either leaving the void unfilled or filling it with some new affirmation. For instance, the 19th century completed a scheme of textual criticism for establishing the date of an ancient document. One of the principles in this scheme is that any statement of the Marvelous is necessarily false. When you find in any document of Marvel, you've touched for the per- supposed author of that document, you have a right to conclude, say the textual criti- critics of the 19th century, all talking like one man, that the document was not contemporary was not of the date which it claimed to be. There comes along a new and original critic who says, I don't agree. I think that marvels happen, and I also think that people tell lies. A man thus budding in in is a heretic in relation to that particular orthodox system. Once you grant this exception, a number of secure negatives become insecure. You are certain, for instance, that the life of St. Martin of Tours, which professed to be a contemporary witness, was not by a contemporary witness because of the marvels it recited, but if the new principle be admitted, it might be contemporary after all, and therefore something to which it bore witness. In no way marvelous, but not found in any other dark document, may be accepted as historical. You read in the life of a thaumaturge that he raised a man from the dead in the Basilica of Vienna in AD 500. The orthodox school of criticism would say that the whole story being obviously false, because marvelous, it is no evidence for the existence of a Basilica in Vienna at that date your heretic, who disputes the orthodox canon of criticism, says, it seems to me that the biographer of the thaumaturge may have been telling lies, but that he would not have mentioned the basilica in the date unless contemporaries knew, as well as he did, that there was a basilica in Vienna at that date. One falsehood does not presuppose universal falsehood in a narrator. There might even come along a still bolder heretic who should say, not only is this passage perfectly good evidence for the existence of a basilica at Vienna in AD 500, but I think it's possible that the man was raised from the dead. If you follow either of these critics, you are upsetting a whole scheme of tests, whereby true history was sifted from false in the textual criticism of recent times. The denial of a scheme wholesale is not heresy, and has not the creative power of a heresy. It is of the essence of heresy that leaves standing a great part of the structure it attacks. On this account, it can appeal to believers and continues to affect their lives through deflecting them from their original characters. Wherefore, it is said of heresies that they survive by the truths they retain. We must note that whether the complete scheme thus attacked be true or false is indifferent to the value of heresy as a department of historical study. What we are concerned with is the highly interesting truth that heresy originates a new life of its own and vitally affects the society it attacks. The reason that men combat heresy is not only or principally conservative devotion to routine, a dislike or of disturbance in their habits of thought, it is much more perception that the heresy, insofar as it gains ground, will produce a way of living and a social character at issue with it, irritating and perhaps mortal too, the way of living and the social character produced by the old orthodox scheme. So much for the general meaning and interest of that most pregnant word, heresy. Its particular meaning, the meaning in which it is used in this book, is the marring by exception of that complete scheme, the Christian religion. For instance, the religion has for one essential part, though it is only a part, the statement that the individual soul is immortal. That personal conscience survives physical death. Now if people believe that, they look at the world and themselves in a certain way, and go on in a certain way, and are people of a certain sort. If they accept, that is, cut out, this one doctrine, they may continue to hold all the others, but the scheme is changed. The type of life and character and the rest become quite other. The man who is certain that he is going to die for good and for all may believe that Jesus of Nazareth was very God and very of uh, very God, that God is triune, that the incarnation was accompanied by a virgin birth, that bread and wine are transformed by a particular formula. He may recite a great number of Christian prayers and admire and copy chosen Christian exemplars but he will be quite a different man from the man who takes immortality for granted. Because heresy in this particular sense, the denial of an accepted Christian doctrine, thus affects the individual, it affects all society. And when you are examining a society formed by a particular religion, you necessarily concern yourself to the utmost with the warping or diminishing of that religion. That is the historical interest of heresy. That is why anyone who wants to understand how Europe came to be and how its changes have been caused cannot afford to treat heresy as unimportant. The ecclesiastics who fought so furiously over the details of definition in the Eastern councils had far more historical sense, and were far more in touch with reality than the French skeptics, familiar to English readers through their disciple Gibbon. A man who thinks, for instance, that Arianism is a mere discussion of words, does not see that the world of Arius would have been much more like the contemporary world of those who are neighbors with our so-called elder brothers, than what the European world had become. He is much much less in touch with reality than was Athanasius when he affirmed the point of doctrine to be all-important. The local council in Paris, which tipped the scale in favor of the Trinitarian tradition, was of as much effect as a decisive battle, and not to be understood that it is a poor historian. It is no answer to such a thesis to say that both the Orthodox and the heretics were suffering from illusion, that they were discussing matters which had no real existence and were not worth the trouble of debate. The point is that the doctrine and its denial were formative of that nature of men, and the nature so formed determined the future of the society made up of those men. There is another consideration in this connection which is too often omitted in our time. It is this, that the skeptical attitude upon transcendental things cannot, for masses of men, Endure. It has been the despair of many that this should be so. They deplore the despicable weakness of mankind, which compels the acceptance of some philosophy or some religion in order to carry on life at all. But there have, been, but we have a matter of positive and universal experience. Indeed, there is no denying it. It is mere fact. Human society cannot carry on without some creed, because a code and a character are the product of a creed. In point of fact, though, individuals, especially those who have led shatter- sheltered lives— can often carry on with a minimum of certitude or habit upon transcendental things. An organic human mass cannot so carry on. Thus, a whole religion sustains modern England, the religion of patriotism. Destroy that in men by some heretical development, by accepting the doctrine that a man's prime duty is towards a p- political society to which he belongs, and England as we know it would gradually cease and become something else. Heresy, then, is not a fossil subject. It is a subject of permanent and vital interest to mankind because it is bound up with the subject of religion, without some form of which no human society ever has endured or can ever endure. Those who think that the subject of heresy may be neglected because the term sounds to them old-fashioned and because it is connected with a number of disputes long abandoned are making the common error of thinking in words instead of ideas. It is the same sort of error which contrasts America as a republic with England as a monarchy whereas, of course, the government of the United States is essentially monarchic, and the government of England is essentially republican and aristocratic. There is no end to the misunderstandings which arise from the uncertain use of words. But if we keep in mind the plain fact that a state, a human policy, or general culture, must be inspired by some body of morals, and that there can be no body of morals without doctrine, and if we agree to call any consistent body of morals and doctrine of religion, then the importance of heresy as a subject will become clear, Because heresy means nothing else than the proposal of novelties in religion by picking out from what has been accepted religion some point or another, denying the same or replacing it by another doctrine hitherto unfamiliar. The study of successive Christian heresies, their characters and fates, has a special interest for all of us who belong to the European or Christian culture, and that is a reason that ought to be self evident. Our culture was made by a religion changes in or deflections from that religion necessarily affect our civilization as a whole. The whole story of Europe, her various realms and states and general bodies during the last 16 centuries, has mainly turned upon the successive heresies arising in the Christian world. We are what we are today mainly because no one of those heresies finally overset our ancestral religion. But we are also what we are because each of them profoundly affected our fathers for generations, Each heresy left behind its traces, and one of them, the great movement that always is hostile to our faith, that our neighbors, to our so-called elder brothers in the Holy Land, remains to this day in dogmatic force and preponderant over a great fraction of territory which was once holy ours. If one were to catalog heresies making the whole long story of Christendom, the list would seem almost endless. They divide and subdivide. They are on every scale. They vary from the local to the general. Their lives extend from less than a generation to centuries. The best way of understanding the subject is to select a few prominent examples, and by the study of these to understand what vast important heresy may be. Such a study is easier from the fact that our fathers recognized heresy for what it was, gave it in each case a particular name, subjected it to a definition, and therefore to limits. It made its analysis the easier by such definition. Unfortunately, in the modern world, the habit of such a definition has been lost. The word heresy, having come to connote something odd and old-fashioned, is no longer applied to cases which are clearly cases of heresy and ought to be treated as such. For instance, there is abroad today a denial of what theologians call dominion, that is, the right to own property. It is widely affirmed that laws permitting the private ownership of land and capital are immoral. That the soil of all goods which are productive should be communal, and that any system leaving their control to individuals or families is wrong and therefore to be attacked and destroyed. That doctrine, already very strong among us and increasing in strength and the number of its adherents, we do not call a heresy. We think of it only as a political or economic system. When we speak of the hammer and sickle, our vocabulary does not suggest anything theological. But this is only because we have forgotten what the word theological means. The hammer and sickle ideology is as much a heresy as Manichaeism. It is a taking away from the moral scheme by which we have lived of a particular part, the denial of that part and the attempt to replace it by an innovation. The devotee of the hammer and sickle remains much of the, retains much of the Christian scheme, human equality, the right to live, and so forth. He denies a part of it only. The same is true on the attack of the indissolubility of the nuptial bond. No one calls the mass of modern practice and affirmation upon breaking the nuptial sacrament a heresy, but a heresy it clearly is because its determining characteristic is the denial of the Christian doctrine of marriage and the substitution, therefore, of another doctrine, to wit, that the nuptial sacrament is but a contract and a terminable contract. Equally, is it a heresy, a change by exception, to affirm that nothing can be known upon divine things, that all is mere opinion, and that therefore things made certain by the evidence of the senses and by experiment should be our only guides in arranging human affairs. Those who think thus may and commonly do retain much of Christian morals, but because they deny certitude from authority, which doctrine is a part of Christian epistemology, they are heretical. It is not easy to say that reality can be reached by experiment, but by sensual perception and by deduction. It is heresy to say that reality can be attained from no other source. We are living today under a regime of heresy with only this to distinguish it from the older periods of heresy, that the heretical spirit has become generalized and appears in various forms. It will be seen that I have in the following pages talked of the modern attack, because some name must be given to a thing before one can discuss it at all. But the tide which threatens to overturn us is so diffuse that each must give it its own name. It has no common name as yet. Perhaps that will come, but not until the conflict between the modern anti-Christian spirit and the permanent tradition of the faith becomes acute through persecution and the triumph of defeat thereof. It will then perhaps be called Antichrist. The word is derived from the Greek verb haido, which first meant I grasp or I seize, and then came to mean I take away. And there you have it, Hilara Belloc's introduction to his famous work The Great Heresies. Sometimes people ask where to start with Belloc after I post one of his videos or a video on one of his writings. The Great Heresies might be a good place to start. There are, you, you do a little research on him and you will find that modern thinkers with modern values say some pretty nasty things about Belloc. But that's because they don't understand him or his ideas, whether they be his theological ideas, his socioeconomic ideas, or his ideas about our relations with our elder brothers or anything else. People don't understand Belloc and they have forgotten him, which is unfortunate because he was one of the great minds of the 20th century, and he was prolific in his writing, writing everything from poetry to theology to history to economics. You name a genre of serious literature, and he was writing it. He even wrote satirical children's books that were definitely not for children. (laughs) Anyway, let me know what you thought of this in the comments. Please like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help, and as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.